Welcome to the Mile High Five podcast. My name is Carl Jensen, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. And we have two very special and cool guests today. Tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Eddie Liang, and I am a financial planner at Downshift Financial. And I'm Travis Hughes. We're business partners. We, we uh, co-own Downshift Financial. So I understand you might have a good story about steak dinners and financial advisors, financial planners. Can you tell us what that's about? Yeah. So financial advisors go out and try to bring in, try to find clients by different things like offering seminars, offering things like steak dinners, any sort of freebies to attract a crowd. And we actually have one case where we had a prospective client come to us who had been offered a steak dinner and listened to the spiel and was pitched various products. And he brought it to me and said, hey, Eddie, what do you think about this? You know, I'm thinking about leaving my current advisor, Edward Jones, for this, for this new and, and sexy um, financial planner that I met with and got a free steak dinner from. And I took a look at the... Uh, the sales materials and the advisor had pitched two products. One was a very complicated annuity product that would probably generate some good commissions up front. And a and he put the rest of the funds, rest of the money in like a a managed dividend portfolio that just had 20 stocks for the rest of the guys like nest egg, which is not prudent. Like there's no diversification in that portfolio, but you know, it, uh, so this advisor invites people from the public, right. To come to a steak dinner and is giving them advice on what to do with their life savings without really knowing who they are or what the money's for, what the goals are, you know, what's, what's unique about that person's financial situation. And of course, half of it is a high, high fee, high commission product. And, uh, I mean, in terms of stock dividend stock portfolios, like chasing dividends is really not the best way to invest your money. Dividends are great, but it's only half of the return, right? You should be concerned with the total return of your investments, not just the dividends. Income's great. Um, and that's one of the reasons why real estate is very attractive, but it, it was just a very poor, <laughs> it, yeah, it was really was terrible. A, so this was a, um, this was a re recommendation that was made, oh, two to three years ago. And we've seen what happened in the stock market where, you know, growth has totally like outpaced value by a big stretch. So that would have left our client, well, who's now our client, um, you know, he, he would have underperformed. It amuses me when you talked about the annuity, annuity, did I say annuity? Jeez, what the heck is that? <laughs> I think we just invented something, Doug. Uh, you, you said generate good, and I was expecting you to say returns for the client, but you spoke nothing of the client. You said generate good commissions, so it was going to be really good for the selling party, but maybe not so good for the client. Yeah. In in, in the industry, there's a saying that uh, annuities are sold, not bought. Like nobody says, oh, I can't, I'm going to wake up and just go buy an annuity today. It's salespeople that are, you know, spinning it. And did you know that annuities are the only investment product where someone can say, a financial advisor, a salesperson can see, say the word guaranteed. The wow. only product in the United States of America where you can say this investment is guaranteed. But that's a powerful word. And that's part of the problem because if you're a client and you don't know any better, you always hear people say stuff like the stock market is a gamble or blah, blah, blah. You hear the word guaranteed and that's going to resonate with a lot of people who don't know any better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's tough because I, I actually I was in that position out of uh, college, I got a job and a friend recommended a specific insurance company and it doesn't have the word East in it, but the opposite of that. And those guys suck. I hate those guys. Uh, those are my opinions, uh, not anything you guys said, just to be clear. And yeah, they sold me some nonsense stuff, but they were recommended by a friend. And I was like, oh, I'm investing in my future. They sold me some bullshit stuff like uh, essentially what you described here and probably some other worse things too. So luckily I learned a lot from that. But yeah, if you come in without any prior knowledge and you get this great steak dinner, I love steak, so I can resonate with that. And you're getting this uh, you know, guarantee. You have no clue that you're making a really bad decision. 
Yeah. yeah, and I'm sure with that steak dinner, like, let's say there are 30 people in the room. If he could get one client from that, that steak dinner would have been paid for. Oh, right? sure. Yeah. And the entire presentation is carefully crafted to play a, play against your emotions. And, you know, they're going to talk about stark market crashes and all the things. And, oh, well, our, you know, your annuity can only go up. It can't go down. And, you know, all the all this sort of stuff. And it's like investments are investments, right? I mean, the, w- the way the annuities work, the insurance company is taking your money and investing it on their own account. So they're basically making the spread between what they pay you and what the investments actually actually right. receive, you know? It's crazy. The worst part of it is I did it not for a steak dinner, but for a latte. So I was <laughs> I was operating. I, I really like those coffees, you know? So what was your background? Have you always been in the financial space? And uh, Travis, why don't you go first and then Eddie... Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so I, I graduated college in uh, May of 2008 with a, just a very generic business degree. And man, it was just flawless timing to go for a job hunt. Um, <clears throat> very quickly discovered real estate investment uh, and kind of I went into real estate working in property management because I wanted to, uh, you know, integrate real estate into my wealth building strategy. And I figured the best way to, to do that as a landlord to learn to be a good landlord and, and, you know, maximize returns and do everything well will be to just work in the industry. Um, and I did, and I, and I learned a ton and eventually I sort of moved on and discovered all of the fire blogs that are out there, um, started devouring all of that stuff voraciously. And eventually I ended up, you know, once you've kind of a lot of, there's a lot of really good ideological stuff in the fire community, but once you've kind of consumed all the technical content, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a technician by nature. Like I'm just very deeply like spreadsheet oriented. And, um, I I was kind of reading the same stuff over and over. And then I ended up migrating over to financial advisor blogs like kitsis.com. I don't know if you're familiar with Michael Mm -hmm. Kitsis and advisor perspective. So I was reading this content that was intended to educate financial advisors and, uh, did that for a year or two before I finally sort of had a light bulb moment and realized that I needed to, to do this for a living. Um, and, uh, my wife would tell you that that light bulb moment should have been much sooner, but yeah. So, so I made a career change and got into finance. Okay. And then like looking back, it's kind of a nice set of skills since you have like real estate skills and the property management and now like another layer on top. So that, that's pretty cool. Nice. Mm-hmm. How about you, Eddie? Yeah. So I graduated with a degree in economics, um, from a college in, in the Los Angeles area. And I had the opportunity to join a small team. Uh, there were four of us um, at a one of the large like wirehouse brokerage firms that most people would probably recognize. Um, and I joined this team. There were two advisors and two support staff, and we were in the um, in the private banking division where we um, served um, ultra high net worth clients, so um, clients with ten plus million in liquid assets. Um, so my team in particular. Um, had maybe $700 million in assets under management, um, 45 households. So, you know, we're talking about um, entrepreneurs who experienced some sort of liquidity event, um, you know, whether they're bought out or went public, a lot of C-level executives, um, families that inherited wealth and just needed, you know, a guide. And also being in the LA area, like celebrities, like people in the entertainment industry. So, um, hedge fund and venture capital private equity people as well. And that was just very fulfilling for you, right? You know, I learned a lot. I remember, you know, my first week at work and just looking at statements going, wow, like there's so many like digits and commas like in this <laughs> yeah. net worth. I had never seen that before. I was just blown away. Um, and to be able to just to work in that environment, in that office was a flagship office for, um, for the high net worth division um, of, this, of this firm. And I mean, these other teams are serving billionaires too. It's just crazy exposure that I would have never expected. Sure. And is that like an elite group? Like, is that a pretty sought after position that you had? I, yeah, I'd say so. I don't want to sound, you know, elitist or anything, but um, it was it was a group that just focused on having a very small client base, but just giving them white glove service. So. That's why there was that very like high minimum. Gotcha. Okay. 
Did people or their servants have your direct phone number? So if the stock market dropped 25%, was your phone ringing off the hook? Or Luckily not mine. It was the advisor's phones that were, that were probably ringing. Not mine. I was just, you know, a new grad. <laughs> Didn't know much back then. He, he, he did a lot of the actual work, and then there were other team members that were the rainmakers and relationship managers. Okay, I, so. I think I'd enjoy doing the actual work more than being a counselor on the phone when the Dow has a bad day. Yeah. I mean, what was great being starting in 03 was, yeah, we're kind of rebounding. Um, but it, it allowed me to get, like, kind of understand how the business worked before the financial crisis hit, crisis hit in 08, 09. So like, that's actually one thing that we really enjoy working with our particular client base because a lot of them are fairly well educated with with investments, and so, you know, they they don't have those panic selling moments when the market crashes. Um, instead, they they might call us up and say, "Hey, you know, I've got a little bit extra money. Let's put it in the market." That's awesome. Was that a fee based service, Eddie, or was that? Yeah, so it's fee based, meaning that we charge not only like a percentage of assets under management. Uh, but also we could sell commissions-based products as well. Because our team did have a good revenue stream, we weren't so um, conflicted in, in pushing um, commissions-based products. Okay. Um, so it was primarily uh, assets under management. Yeah, and I said fee-based there. I meant to say fee-only, actually, versus yeah. a percentage so of their... by that definition, no, we were not fee-only. Okay. Just about all of the major wirehouse, like Goliath National Bank type financial advisors and firms are, go are going to be having some sort of commission, so they can't be, mm -hmm. they're normally not fee only. Okay. Oh. And just to break it down, why is a commission-based situation a problem? Why do we care? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think any economist will tell you that incentives matter, right? Um, <clears throat> I've met a lot of fee-based advisors, meaning fee-plus commission advisors, um, that do a good job for their clients and are true fiduciaries. But in the aggregate, across thousands and thousands of advisors and millions and millions of clients, fee-based advisors, or really any advisor that accepts commissions, is going to skew toward whatever product gives them higher commissions, like annuities, for example. <laughs> and there's uh, also pressure to for the advisor to generate revenues because these firms also have shareholders, most likely, that they need to you know deliver um, good financial results to for to you know boost the stock price and such. Yeah. So the incentives are not aligned with. Where the, where they should be, which is what the client, the best needs of the client, or the the incentives aren't aligned with the client. They're aligned exactly. They're aligned with the investor, or I'm sorry, with the advisor and whomever the advisor has to answer to. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's you know a lot of a lot of the problem too is that it's just very opaque. It's nearly impossible for a consumer or a client to really understand, you know, which products are generating commissions and what dollar amounts and things like that. Annuities are a very easy target because it's pretty obvious every annuity has a commission linked to it. Um, but even you know actively managed mutual funds have commissions. Some of them have what's called a front end load where you pay I don't know three three percent five percent up front. That commission is mostly going to the financial advisor. Some of them have in, embedded fees called twelve B one fees, which is an ongoing fee that generates a commission for the advisor that sold them. It's it's a uh, it's it's legally considered a like a marketing and distribution fee, I think is what it's called. So you know if you if you have a a 12 b one fee on the, on this account on this mutual fund every single year, 0.85 percent of your money is getting scraped off the top and given to the financial advisor, you know. And and this information is like hidden, like yeah, it's buried. It's it's there, but it's buried in a ton of paperwork. So I mean, clients don't really know what they're paying for mm -hmm. and if if i were getting this advice from that old insurance agent if i ask directly do they have to answer or can they can they kind of say oh, i'm not sure i think it's in there you may have to find it can they actually like straight up withhold the information if i directly ask them hey are you getting a commission and how much is that based on the a percentage or whatever so they they should disclose it um and in fact, that's kind of why he's talking about how well it's buried, because a lot of times, especially with these, again, these, you know, Goliath National Bank, big wirehouse firms, they'll give you a stack of paperwork of disclosures. And I mean, you just it's hopeless for anybody to really read through it and understand it. And I'm sure part of the training uh, to become an advisor also 
um, involves kind of deflecting that answer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do 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 your do your listeners and viewers understand the difference between fee only and fee based? Should we? Let's talk about so, it. So, I mean, obviously, we're spending a lot of time talking about commissions here. Um, fee only really is a phrase for a financial advisor that I, I believe should be rebranded as commission free. Fee only. We are fee only. That means that our only source of revenue is the fee that our client pays us. Fee only. So when fee only advisors came around back in the '90s and a little bit earlier, um, the these big firms invented a new phrase called fee based because man, that just sounds so close, doesn't it? Fee based. Yeah, we're fee based. Fee based means fee plus commission. It means our revenue is based off of fees, but hey, we also get commissions on the side. So what the worst possible answer you can have if you ask a financial advisor, are you fee only, is yeah, we're fee based. Oh, because they're straight up misdirecting you. Mm-hmm. And it short circuits your brain a little bit. Are, are you this? Yeah, I'm that. Okay. You know? Yeah, that's so terrible and why I eventually came to mistrust uh, everyone in the industry. <laughs> no offense. You guys seem okay. No, understandably. <laughs> I mean, that's that's why we set out to do this. Um, yeah. There's there's just so much in the industry that ne- that needs to be changed, and it's it's nearly hopeless for the, your average consumer to understand and navigate it well. I mean, right. And so, are there a few? And I'm not sure if I'm jumping ahead too much, but let's say someone is sitting down with an advisor, they're not sure if they're going to work with them. Are there like two or three questions that they should ask to even base like, Hey, should I work with this person at all? So I think maybe that's one, are you uh, fee based or, or fee only? And they'll have to answer that. So you have a couple others loaded up. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to take yeah, that? Actually, that's a great question that you asked because we had put together an ebook um, about 10 with 10 questions to ask your advisor. And I don't know if you have like a, um, an episode like, episode notes where we can like you can put a link toward we can put a link in your notes for it but yeah we we, we did produce an ebook that's you know 10 questions you definitely want to ask every financial advisor are, are you fee only is one of the top ones are you a fiduciary which is a legal term that means they are required to act in your best interest and not only are you a fiduciary but are you a fiduciary at all times uh, because again at these big wirehouses you'll get advisors that are what's called dual registered, meaning they're registered as a financial advisor subject to a specific law, the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. Those people are fiduciaries. They're required by federal law to act in your best interest. And then brokers are registered to sell products, right? Broker dealers. You have advisors that are dual registered. So basically what happens is they'll have their fiduciary hat on and depending on what what account or what type of trans- transaction they're entering into with you, they can flip it around and put their broker hat on and not be a fiduciary anymore. That is insane. That, right. that is so ridiculous. Well, we didn't even have to disclose that. So I was dual registered. And depending on like, like what Travis said, what type of account I was talking about, you know, I just changed that hat. Yeah. There's no way for the consumer to know. I mean, you just can't. Yeah. I mean, it's you like, can if you know all the legal things that we know, but. Right. And then that. <laughs> but the average consumer doesn't. Doesn't. Yeah. It's like being married and single, depending on what you're doing and where you're at. I think some people are like that, Doug. (laughs) If you're in Denver, you're married. If you're in Vegas. Yeah, that is. okay. keep going. Any other like top hitters? And we'll put the link so people can see all 10. But any other any other couple? How are you compensated? Like going back to the, um, you know, conflicts of interest, like commission based products may get pushed harder (laughs) than others. Yeah, what's your compensation? Does you or your firm engage in any sort of like sales contests or award programs? Um, that used to be really popular a few decades ago. It's fallen out of favor now. Even a lot of these big firms are not doing it anymore, but some of them still are. Um, and it's not even, you know, sometimes it's cash awards, but sometimes it'll be something a lot more like lucrative and tangible and sexy, like all expenses paid vacations and stuff. Hey, if you sell enough products, we'll send you to Hawaii, all expenses paid, things like that. This is crazy. I think if you're listening to this and in the market for an advisor, you need to get this book. <laughs> I, I knew about a lot of, of this stuff before this conversation today, but this is kind of – it's uh, disgusting and disturbing. Uh, those people sound kind of like just a fancy used car salesman. I mean, granted, there are good people in the, in the industry, um, but it's just hard to find out who you can trust and who you can't because – I mean, there's not, 
you usually just go to your friends and family to, to find out who they use as their advisor and then you just go with them you know, because you trust that that person was doing a good job. Yep, that's exactly how my wife worked with her advisor until we fired all our advisors <laughs> Yeah, at some point when we became self-aware. So, Well, and, and these advisors, a lot of them, especially if they kind of like grew up in these big firms, they don't, they don't really know any better. All they know is the culture and ideology of that firm. Yeah, yeah for, I mean, for example, there's a there's a very large uh, firm that has two names that uh, is essentially only does actively managed mutual funds. Um, we believe that the academic and historical evidence suggests that indexing is the best investment strategy. Um, and, you know, everyone that's there just truly believes in these actively managed funds. But like, of course they do. If your entire career was there and you've only read and experienced those things, you know. How would you know any better? It's, it's so funny that you say the two names because what's going through my mind right now is did you consider, instead of Downshift Financial, did you consider going with Eddie Travis to try to get some confusion <laughs> and to try to get some of their confused customers or potential customers? I'm just screwing it. Yeah. <laughs> no, Eddie actually came up with, with uh, Downshift and yeah, we've really hit the nail on the head with the people we wanted to serve. I mean, it's 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 been amazing so far. So Yeah, yeah can you talk about like what... What do you want to convey with the name Downshift? Yeah, I mean, so we're just, you know, we're both fire proponents ourselves. We've been in the community as well. And um, so we we just really wanted to serve, you know, Eddie was talking earlier about how he was serving decamillionaires and centimillionaires and just people that aren't like living a real life. You know what I mean? And uh, we just want to serve people like ourselves, our, our peers, our friends and family, just regular people. And you know, with the whole fire ideology, we wanted, really wanted to help people that, you know, had a, had a little bit of that ideology, whether, whether they are, you know, consider themselves to be fire proponents or not. There's a lot of people out there that kind of have that in the back of their mind that they don't want to, you know, work 40 years and then retire and go golf the rest of their life that, you know, they want, there's no, there's no, there's more to life than that. Um, so yeah, so we're helping to looking to help folks that want to, you know, early retire, semi-retire, um, launch, passion projects or side businesses, things like that, just kind of more align their their money and their their time with their values, what's really important to them. And because you're fee only, you could serve anyone. I, I could be a college student, six months out of college and have $1,000 and you could help that person out. Whereas a traditional person might turn that individual down. Yeah. So that's a good point because most traditional um, financial advisors who charge assets under management are looking for people who have money, right? Um, so they're going primarily after retirees. So there's a huge swath of like underserved, like potential clients who need good, like advice, but can't get it anywhere because yeah. I mean, traditionally there, there wasn't money to be made. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So these advisors that charge as a percentage of assets under management, what we call AUM, ordinarily it's about 1% of AUM. And so, like Eddie's saying, they're they're chasing people that already have lots of money because that's where all the fees are. That's where all the revenue is. Even even among the fee only community, right? I mean, if that's your if your fee model is based off of how much money your clients have, the more money your clients have, the more money you're going to make, right? And it's kind of like saying, you know, you can't join a gym unless you can always already deadlift three hundred pounds. Like, well, you got to start somewhere. I have deadlift three hundred pounds. I don't have a barbell at home. I need to work out, right? I mean. So, so we decided to, to start this business on a flat fee model. So we just charge a straight up flat fee of twelve fifty a quarter. And we don't care if you have a negative net worth or a $10 million net worth, we're charging the same fee because we're providing the same services to everybody, right? We have a list of services that we provide. We have a, a course check calendar where we do the same thing with every client. The financial plan and what we, you know, what the result with that client is, is custom tailored, but we're making sure that we're doing the same things for each client. We're always you know, handling estate planning, tax prep, reviewing beneficiaries, handling their investments and all of this other stuff as well. One point of clarification, you mentioned the typical asset under management fee is 1% and that doesn't include all the fees from an actively managed mutual fund too. So right. that's Correct. just in addition. So, yeah. So yeah, whatever investments that advisor puts the client in are fees on top of that 1%. Well, nearly every investment has some sort of fees. I mean, we, we use index funds. Uh, most of them are, are very slow, very low fees, typically below 0.1%, um, especially a lot of the domestic funds. I mean, S&P 500 funds, things like that, you're looking at 0 0.03, 0.04%. It's very negligible. But yes, that's a good point because we've had, I mean, we had someone recently that, that came to us to get a free assessment 
And we were looking over their statements and everything, and, and we were able to show them that, you know, this other advisor that they were working with, when you took the 1% fee and then you added on the nearly 1% of underlying fees in the investments that they had put them in, they were already paying a fee to this other person and, and the mutual funds, equivalent to what they would have been paying us. And they were getting essentially nothing in return. Basically, this person would just put their money in funds and then call them once a year and ask if they had any more money to invest. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. I mean, it's great for the advisor to be on that assets under management fee schedule because it's scalable because the market traditionally continues to climb. Right. So if you you charge one percent on a growing asset base, your revenues are should go up every year without doing more work. Mm -hmm. uh, sickening. Oh, it's crazy. Or if you're serving like a one million dollar client versus a five million dollar client. The five million dollar client is paying five times as much, but probably isn't getting five times the amount of service that the one million dollar client is. Exactly. I mean, the 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 value of a real financial planner is massive. Like, I don't want to underplay that. Um, but this percent based fee model, I mean, it just is out of this world. Like it has nothing to do with the value. It's just, it's just the way that things were developed 50 years ago in the investment advice industry. And so it's kind of, it's kind of a remnant of that history. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's crazy. If you have $5 million, you're paying a financial advisor $50,000 a year. <laughs> yeah, pretty simple stuff. Well, let's get into some of that. So you're you're kind of not targeting, but your market would be sort of the the Phi community or people with those kind of ideals. And I, I'm in that space. I feel like I kind of have a handle on you know what I'm doing so far, and I've gotten rid of advisors in the past. So how does that change how you approach the practice and and what you do in general? Yeah. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing for us is it's kind of like trying to sell a ticket to a, to Disneyland to someone that's never heard of a theme park. Um, if you've never had real financial planning done, it's hard to really describe it. Um, it's not, you know, investments are a very small sliver of it. Um, but what we're looking to do is, is align again, your, your values and your time with your money. And, uh, there's a lot of things that, so for example, I have a very close friend that I was catching up with over beers just before the pandemic struck. And uh, we were talking about um, his passion for uh, Feeding America is a nonprofit that handle that addresses uh, food insecurity. And he went through a period of severe food insecurity in his early 20s. And so he's like very passionate about this, this nonprofit. And um, I said, hey, how would your life be different if you this person is single, not not married, no dependents, no debt? Right. On paper, he has no use for life insurance. Like there's no reason to have it. I said, hey, how would your life be different if you had to if you were required to spend five hundred dollars a year more than you are now? It wasn't negligible, basically. And I said, OK, well, what if in the, you know, unlikely and tragic event of your death sometime in the next 20 years, you could leave a million dollars to feeding America? It's like I, I could, you know, I'm never going to have a million dollars. How am I going to do that? term life insurance, you know, and it was like his head just exploded. So there, there's things like this that, you know, I, I was able to show him in that conversation that you could spend a very, a relatively, I mean, $500 is nothing to spend just at a coffee shop, but it's a relatively small amount of money in the grand scheme of things. But that really aligns his values and what he cares about in life better with how he's spending his money. So that's what we seek to do with our clients. Great example. What do you think about some of the dogma in the early retirement movement, like the 4% rule? Do you talk about that with clients? What's your thought on that? Yeah, we certainly do use the 4% rule as a general rule of thumb. The, the interesting thing about the fire community is that they're looking beyond a 30-year time horizon. And that's when things get a little bit trickier and we should be a little bit more conservative. Also, the stock market has done well, did really well when Bill Bankin did the study, as well as the bond market. I mean, both of those markets were doing extremely well. So who knows if it can repeat itself from here on out. So we definitely use it as a rule of thumb, but we like to be a little bit more conservative. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> that that the original Trinity study was a couple decades ago. And, uh, you know, with elevated CAPE ratios and things like that now, 
there's there's no way to know how it's going to go how it's going to happen going forward i think it's a good benchmark to to you know just do bar napkin math um you know anywhere between three and a half percent and four and a half percent is probably feasible depending on you know the individual situation and risk tolerance and risk capacity and things like that as well as flexibility um, one thing, especially with the type of clients that, that we serve that want to downshift their lives, a lot of times they're looking at, you know, leaving full-time employment and then kind of doing, you know, maybe even doing what they were doing before, but part-time self-employed and even just having a little bit of income like that. I mean, 20, $30,000 of income working 10, 15 hours a week goes a long way. If you're trying to stretch your, your retirement assets across, you know, four or five, six decades of time. So yeah, your job is very different than what a traditional advisor would have to deal with. Because I imagine with a traditional person, the people tend to be older and more conventional. I'm going to retire at 65, and when I retire, I'll be able to get Social Security. Where you're going to have a diverse group of people with a whole, a very diverse group of circumstances that must be challenging, right? Everyone's going to be a little bit different, mm-hmm. not much less homogeneous than they would be with a traditional advisor. Yeah. 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 And we, you know, we have to integrate that into, into the financial plans too. I mean, you know, for example, you're, you're I don't know about your viewers, but y'all, y'all are probably familiar with, uh, you know, equity glide paths, right? So basically just changing the allocation between stocks and bonds over time. There's a technique that can be used if you have a, a high risk tolerance called a rising equity glide path. When you retire, basically when you start withdrawing money from your investment accounts, there's a challenge called sequence of returns risk that you need to mitigate. Basically, if you have a, a you know, a stock market downturn in the first couple of years of withdrawing money, it can be devastating long-term to your portfolio. Um, so we end up with these weird things where, you know, if you, if you downshift and, and leave full-time employment when you're say 40, 45, um, you have to account for sequence of returns risk then, but then you're still going to, you know, you're going to withdraw a little bit of money along the way, but you're still working. And then when you actually retire at 65 or 70, you have to account for it again. Right. So then we have a situation where you kind of have your glide path has two dips in it instead of one. So there's a lot of customization that we have to do for our clients. Okay. And what what would you do in those cases? I guess, do you like allocate a little bit more to bond? Actually, I won't fill it in because I'll make a fool of myself. So what what might you do in that case or how do you mitigate it? Yeah. I mean, it just depends on the, the client situation. Again, each, each client is different. I mean, you can't a rising equity glide path is not right for everyone. It's only right for some people. And even, and even then to what extent, right? Um, for example, if you start at 50, 50 stocks and bonds and you were going to apply a rising equity glide path, are you going to rise up to 80, 20 or hundred percent stocks again? How far do you rise up and over what amount of time? Right? So all that sort of stuff just has to be customized. The, the goal is just to make sure that obviously the client's financial goals are, are being met. And then how we get there just has to kind of meet, you know, meet that individual person, be custom tailored to that person. Um, but there's all, t- all types of different tools that are in your toolbox, so to speak. Got it. And I guess, you know, thinking potentially like 30 years in the future, like you're going to have to reassess that our plans now are going to be a nice plan for now, but things change so much. Oh, yeah. I mean, the plan that we come up with today is going to be obsolete tomorrow. Like yeah. things change, market dynamics shift um, you know, goals shift. So this financial plan that we create births and deaths in the family. Yeah. It, it, it kind of goes, it kind of is flexible too. Um, the only thing we know for sure when we finish a capital T capital P plan, the financial plan is that it's wrong, right? (laughs) It's our best guess, but we're trying to make guesses over three, four, five decades. I mean, you just can't, we're, we're making hundreds of assumptions in these plans. We're just trying to get as close as we can and then adjust along the way. It's a little bit like, uh, so sort of like if you look at a Monte Carlo analysis, if y'all are familiar with that, when, the, when there's a hurricane and the National Weather Center puts out these cones of probability, that's what we're doing, basically. We're saying, you want to go here and we have this cone of probability and the further forward in time you go, the wider the cone gets, but this is generally the direction. Let's take a step in this direction and then we'll reassess. Here's a quick word from our sponsor, thanks to the Economy Conference. The Economy Conference, and that's spelled E-C-O-N-O-M-E. I'm not good at spelling out loud, so just bear with me. Well, it has roots in the FIRE movement. It's going to be awesome this year. Carl's actually going to be speaking. 
So that'll be pretty fun. And you may wonder why attend an event about financial freedom when you can educate yourself online or listen to podcasts like this one. Well, community matters very much. And when you decide to take an unconventional path, you may need a little support. Economy gives you the opportunity to surround yourself with an engaged community of people who are doing incredible things with their finances. Whether you're well on your way to financial independence or still struggling with debt, or maybe you're a student and you're about to launch your career, Economy is a great place to uh, meet other people and get more involved in the FIRE community. And actually, we talked to Diana Merriam back in episode 14. Now, I haven't personally met her yet, not in person, and I thought we were actually going to meet at Camp Phi, but she had some travel issues and she actually did her presentation remotely, which was pretty amazing. There were no technical issues and she did a great job. So I'm looking forward to checking out Economy in November. I recently got my ticket, so I'm looking forward to attending, checking out Cincinnati. I've only been to the airport and I'm really looking forward to getting some of that weird spaghetti chili concoction from whatever restaurant it is, but it'll be awesome. Hopefully, we'll see you there. Back to the show. Eddie, what do you like about being an, adv an advisor? So what I love about being an advisor, especially with the fire community, is the impact that I can make. So before when I was working with Decamillionaires, like the recommendation that we made barely like influenced their like lifestyles. Like we were thinking about like generational planning, like planning for you know their grandkids. Whereas with this community that we work with, you know, um, we can certainly help them by making changes here and there to maybe achieve like retirement from a full-time job, like, you know, five months or five years ahead of schedule, like, which is really huge or allow, you know, parents to spend more time with their kids. So making big lifestyle changes through their finances is, is really like, is what I enjoy most. And how did you discover the FIRE community? How long ago was it and what got you into it? Yeah, so I think I came across first the Bogleheads group. I don't know if you're, you guys are aware of um, you know, the devotees of the words and wisdom of Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. I probably did some um, investment research and ended up on Bogleheads. And from there, I think there was a mention about MMM, so I checked out his website, and I was like, oh my gosh, I know I've been saving, I've been a diligent saver, but I didn't know what it was for. Like, I thought that I was going to work to 65, do the traditional retirement, and play golf. But then I found MMM, and I was like, wow, like, I might be able to, you know, shift my career to, to do something different that I'm more passionate about. And, um, yeah, and that's how I discovered Phi and, and how I realized that I wanted to help other people kind of make sense of what money is and the, the freedom and flexibility it can allow. Do you remember how long ago that was? Oh, this is the early 2010. So this is probably like 2011. Okay. But pretty early days yeah. for, uh, Pete. Okay. And I was working long hours, stressful job in Los Angeles. And I was like, gosh, I'm just going to be stuck in this like treadmill, like, because the cost of living is so high. And for me to keep up with the Joneses out there required a, you know, a pretty penny. Sure. Um, and this is before I had kids too. <laughs> and I was like, are you know, are they expensive? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. So then we had explored like moving out of LA and ended up in, in Denver, luckily. Travis, how about you? What do you like about being a financial advisor? Yeah, I mean, how, how do you even put it? Just we, we help our clients lead extraordinary lives, like literally extraordinary, not ordinary. I feel like most a, a lot of people um, sort of let life happen to them. You know, like one thing that I love about Eddie living in, in, in Boulder, he, he just mentioned like they were in in uh, L.A. and they looked at where they wanted to go and, and like they actively chose to move out here. Right. Whereas a lot of people either live where they were born or where some job took them. They just kind of ended up there. Um, and yeah, I mean, help, helping folks lead their lives more intentionally. And like 
you wrote a blog post recently about how much time you spend with your family and why do people about this person that was worth over 20 million and why does he still work and, and stuff like that. That's what we, that's what we want to do. Tell people do is, you know, like what's most important to you. You want to spend time with your family. You want to go hiking on some random Wednesday afternoon. Hey, great. Well, if you're stuck in a cubicle all day, like trading time for money, you can't do that as easy. So if we structure your money in a way that honors, you know, your values and, and your time, then you can do things that other people can't do. Yeah, I think values is the key word here because you're not just talking about money. You're really talking about life and how you're going to use money to get to that life you want, which is totally different and a lot more complicated, but a lot more interesting and rewarding at the same time. Yeah, and it's different for everybody. I mean, you know, we both have young families and, and a lot of folks that come to us have, have families as well. But it's not, you know, some people it's just about traveling or just straight up freedom. Like, I just want to be able to do what I want when I want. And that's fine too. You know, you want to be able to travel or just escape into the mountains spontaneously on a Tuesday, go for it. We'll help you do it. Yeah. I mean, achieving Phi, like it allowed me to, to do something that I'm really passionate about, which is offering financial advice to people who are on the path to independence. So that, I mean, I don't need to rely on working with ultra high net worth clients um, because I don't need to anymore. So I can work with the clients, work with Travis, and do stuff that we love. Amazing. So I think you noted some other things that we should ask you. So we love it when our guests do that. It makes our job much easier so we don't have to come up with our own questions. So I have a note here for 100% VTSAX. It's very popular in the fire community to, to just go 100% in uh, U.S. total stock market investment. Um, I would just really encourage folks to, to do a little bit more research into modern portfolio theory and, uh, you know, re reconsider putting everything into a single investment. Now, it is very well diversified amongst the U.S. stock market. You essentially own every publicly traded company. Um, and a lot of a lot of folks like to think that it is well diversified globally because almost all of these large companies are doing business globally, which is true. Um, however, you know. The goal with an investment portfolio is to maximize your returns per unit of risk. It's called risk-adjusted return, right? And it turns out that international stock markets historically have provided roughly the same uh, rate of return as the U.S. stock market, um, but the correlation between the two is less than one. In other words, they don't move together in lockstep. It is relatively high. They both are stock markets. And when there's recessions, a lot of times they're global recessions. But there are times when the U.S. stock market will head, head up and the international will go down and vice versa. Um, and that's really the key to, to any sort of diversification is, you know, when, when one thing turns down and another thing turns up, you want to sell the one that goes up or some of it, a portion of it, to buy the thing that went down and rebalance to your original target. Um, so I, I would definitely recommend looking at there's a, a paper from Vanguard called, I think it's called the case for international equities or the case for international stocks. Um, just Google it. You can find it online. And they, they show you the actual math uh, to show that you can capture, or historically speaking, you will have captured the same unit of return with less risk, less volatility to your portfolio. Gotcha. Um, and that's considering international stocks. Mm -hmm. Okay. International. Yeah. I mean, in, in the last couple of decades, the U.S. stock market has far out, outpaced uh, most international. And so if you've been in 100% VT sacks, um, you will have done, done well in the last couple of decades. So the question there is, are international stocks, is, is, this, is this a permanent change? Or will we see what's called a reversion to the mean in terms of international stocks performance? If there is a reversion to the mean, then that means that when that happens, international stocks are going to far outperform domestic stocks so that we can go back to the historical norms. So we'll see. There's uh, four very dangerous words, and those words are, this time it's different. Exactly. And, and I was reading a blog about this whole, how the CAPE ratio has been high, and I think it's the philosophical economist. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that said it. He tried to make a case a couple of years ago that this this time it is different. I just said five words there, that the CAPE ratio, there is reason for it to be elevated from this point on. And he put, put two of them in. I don't remember what they were. Do you think that's a bunch of bullshit or do you think it will revert to the mean? Or are you, no answer is fine too. I'm asking you to, yeah. you to predict the I've future. I've got an opinion. You want to go first? I'm just going to say that I'm not smart enough to know. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. No, I, I definitely think, I mean, we, we base all of our uh, investment ideology on academic and historical evidence, not on future projections, right? Um, to answer your question more directly, I think it could go. I think it could go either way. Uh, yeah, I mean, when you start off in a situation where there are elevated valuations, um, projections kind of show that uh, returns will be lower than average because of the, the elevated valuation. returns tend to be lower. For, forward forward earnings tend to be lower. But I mean, the question is, you know, for example, from a systemic standpoint, could it be that you know economies developing, strong rule of law and democracy? free markets and efficient markets and low interest rates lead to higher, you know, elevations of, of, uh, PE ratios. Well, probably. So are these PE ratios going to be sustained because we have established all those things in, in, you know, modern developed society? Um, or is there, are there still going to be shocks that are going to cause problems? I mean, I, seven months ago, there was an attempted coup in this country. Like, <laughs> so yeah, I think all these things are, are great and probably do contribute to, to elevated CAPE ratios. But um, the question is whether it's permanent or not. And there's just no way to know. Anybody that says they do know is is lying to you, to you or to themselves or both. So the two main factors that influence economic growth are population growth and productivity gains. And I think the latter, at least according to Warren Buffett, is more important than productivity gains. And um, where I'm going with this is I always think about this too, like, well, the population probably has some finite limit, although it's, I think it's a lot bigger than people think. Like I, I read everyone in the world could live in the state of Texas and it wouldn't be a big deal. But anyway, the productivity gains is the most important one. And I think about this a lot because I'm a tech guy and, and that very well could accelerate with AI coming on and robotics. Um, AI day for Tesla is going to be this Thursday and I think they're going to announce robots. But the thing I always think about, too, is no one, know, no one knows what the hell is going to happen. And I'm thinking about one block. I don't want to say his name because I like the guy, but he comes up with these very, very precise numbers on, like, you should go by the 3.248% rule because all this historical data said this. So if you're going 60 years out, you need to go by this very precise number. It kind of bothers me a little bit because... The past is going to be different from the future. It might be worse. It might be better. But I can guarantee you it's not going to be the same as it was. And I don't know if you have any response to that. You don't have to respond to that. That's just the kind of stuff I think about. Yeah, no, there's certainly um, something you said about having flexibility built into the plan. So whether that's having cushion or, you know, downshifting to have that side hustle to kind of mitigate the risk of relying completely on your portfolio, um, doing things to try to mitigate sequence of return risks, like... Yeah, I think you actually touched on something that's very important. You you were asking earlier, Doug, about how to screen a financial advisor. Um, again, within the community, we, we within the financial advisor community, we, we do talk about this kind of false sense of precision. Um, and I mean, it's understandable from an emotional standpoint, like any sort of client or investor is, that's what they want, right? They want a sense of security and precision from their advisor. That's what you think is the best outcome, um, but it just doesn't exist. There's, there's no thing here. So, so what we need to do is, you know, come up with the best strategy we can based on the evidence we have, again, academic and historical evidence um, to get you where you want to go and then adjust along the way. But we have to kind of sit and be comfortable in the fact that we don't know the future. There's just no way. There's no way to be as precise as 3.847% or something like that. I mean, you know, uh, again, you asked what... Uh, safe withdrawal rates earlier, and I said three and a half to four percent. I mean, depends on the person and the circumstance, and how much money you have, and what your goals are, and what the what happens to the economy, and, and all that. There's just no way to give you a, give a precise number. So, yeah, I think what Eddie said a moment ago, the F word, and I'm not talking about that F word, Doug, which comes up frequently on our podcast. I'm talking about flexibility is mm -hmm. the most important because, like you just said, Travis, there is no precise. I cannot tell you to withdraw 3.6% and you'll be fine for the next 70 years. Yeah. I mean, it's very important for us to understand how our client behaves and thinks um, because we don't want to put them in a portfolio that keeps them up at night when you know the market drops 50% and causes them to really want to sell. That'd be the worst thing to do. Yep. Um, so it's really understanding them and what what they're capable of if if something bad were to happen, how to kind of help them gu help guide them through the rough waters to get them to, you know, 
get get them to that end goal. All right. Anything else with um, the 100% VTSAX or related as far as your um, like balancing or rebalancing or anything like that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think bonds kind of goes in there too in a very similar way to to international stocks. Um, now, obviously, bonds have a, have a much uh, lower rate of return, but they also have a lot lower rate of volatility. Um, and you know, it's it's possible to actually get the same or better returns. Uh, through like a 90/10 port- portfolio versus a 100% stock portfolio, uh, because you know depending on on the conditions of what you're holding and and what the variations are, you know if the stock market crashes and your bonds go up a little bit and then you sell them and rebalance back, you're going to be again buying stocks when they're low instead of buying them when they're high. Um, so I, I mean I think the key the key thing is certainly I would rather have a Somebody come to us and show us statements of a portfolio that's just 100% VT Sachs, than some of these statements we see that are 20 different actively managed mutual funds with like overlapping holdings and obje- investment objectives and stuff. Um, but it's not. We don't believe it's ideal. So we think that you can still do better by further diversifying amongst amongst other ind- indices as well. Nice. You said something when we started, Travis, that is near and dear to my heart, and this is going to make many, many people mad, but I'd like to you to elaborate on this a little bit. I, I've never been a big fan of dividend investing, especially for the young, but there is a segment of people in, in the community, the FI community and otherwise, who just love dividends, and it kind of breaks my heart a little bit to see some young person talking about how they're going to put their whole portfolio in this dividend portfolio, all their holdings in a dividend portfolio. <laughs> And you kind of hinted that earlier on, and hopefully I'm not putting words in your mouth that this might not be the best idea. Is that true? And if so, could you elaborate? Yeah, I mean, historically speaking, a diversified portfolio that includes growth is going to outperform or, or has, historically speaking, outperformed a dividend-focused portfolio. Um, you know, dividends, again, are only part of the return. You've also got capital appreciation. Um, and, you know, when you're investing, it doesn't make sense to only look at part of the return, right? You want to look at the total return. Um, also, dividends right now are historically very low. So it's a very challenging thing to do. You know, I, I think there's a million ways to skin a cat. We don't focus on dividends. Um, obviously, a lot of the investments that we that we do put our clients in do provide dividends. But, but again, we're focused on the total return. I don't have a specific... Um, study your white paper to like blurt out the title of right now, but anybody that is interested, I would encourage them to reach out to us and I will find you something to, to, to read about it. And it's also important to understand like which companies are paying dividends. Uh, typically it's the older companies that have nothing better to do with their money. Like they don't have projects in place that can return a high, high amount. So they're like, you know, we have nothing. We're going to give it back to our our investors. Yeah, they're more. They tend to be more mature, so find, older stage companies. So you're going to find like utility companies, right? Not GE. Like, yeah, not like the Tesla. GE is a great example. <laughs> I, oh, I think I know a one that, that a lot of folks like to harp on today is uh, AT and T, because it has a high high yield and it's a very well established entrenched business. But like, I mean, they, we don't we don't even like individual stocks. We don't mess with individual stocks. So yeah, so the portfolio that's a whole other can of worms. Own all of these things, right? Yeah, <laughs> we're not trying to target a specific segment of the stock market. Okay, so that was a, actually a follow up question I had for you. You never put a client in an individual stock unless they specifically requested it on it, requested it, and were harped on it. Yeah, and when clients bring us portfolios with existing stocks, you know, we'd love to diversify out, but we also have to consider the tax ramifications for selling out of that position. Um, and that tax thing also, um, there is drag with a dividend-paying stock, you know, mm-hmm. because when that when that firm pays or when the company pays a dividend, you got to pay taxes on that. Okay. Unless you can manage your uh, your income level to the point where you don't have to pay taxes. Yeah. Well, and depending on the tax scheme, it could be that uh, capital gains are more tax efficient for you, right? I mean, you can generate a stream of income from your investments by selling small portions of it as well. Right, and if if you have to pay taxes on dividends, but you're have a lower no no tax on capital gains, that would be the better source of income. There, like I said, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but I just think that you know the academic evidence suggests that dividend investing for dividends specifically is not ideal. You can get a much better return by just focusing on the overall return. And like Eddie said, a lot of these companies are are late stage companies, very well established old companies, 
and there's just no way to know if they're going to be around. I mean, somebody's going to come knock AT&T off their pedestal eventually, right? Someone's going to knock everyone off their pedestal. Even today's Goliaths like Google, Apple, these companies mm -hmm. might be relevant in two decades, but disruption is happening faster and faster. I'm sure Nokia and BlackBerry felt pretty good around 2006, and now look where they're at. I've got one other specific question that is applicable to early retirees that I don't think a lot of traditional advisors could help with, and I'm wondering what you think of this. Uh, the Bad Scientist has a lot of perfectly legal but kind of obscure strategies for getting money out of retirement accounts. Like I'm, I'm 45 and I've got a lot of money, but I can't access my 401k till 55 or 59, depending on the plan. And I don't even remember what they're called, like a 72 T or mm -hmm. maybe a something, something ladder. Can, is this something you could help guide people through? Cause they are complex and there's planning that has to be done to get at that money. Yeah. 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 No, it's a, it's a perfectly legitimate um, code for, for making withdrawals early withdrawals without penalties, you're still going to have taxes if it's a pre-tax account in that case. And it is complex. I mean, you have to, with 72T, you essentially have to annuitize the, the portfolio. And then once you once you turn the faucet on, so to speak, you have to leave it on until certain things are met, certain certain uh, time parameters are met. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a perfectly legitimate way to, to access your money early. And it's, it's an, another tool in the toolbox for folks that want to retire early. So, yeah. What... Uh, it's, you said it was kind of complicated. So what do you have to do? And it sounded like turning it into annuity, you would get like annual payments or some cyclical situation. Can you like go through some of the mechanics? Yeah. If it's not too uh, yeah, complicated. Sorry, I, 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 I'm so bad about using technical phrases. I, it's challenging to, to try to explain this stuff without using technical phrases. So it's not, it doesn't mean you have to buy an annuity, to be clear. Mm -hmm. Annuitize means to turn something into a lifetime stream of income. So in this case, what we're saying is, the IRS requires you to do a mathematical calculation and basically take the portfolio of income and then divide it by, you know, your age and your expected lifespan and things like that to calculate the amount of money that you must withdraw. And then once you start this process, you have to continue withdrawing along that that trajectory that was set at the beginning, um, you know, until I think until you reach a certain age, then you can you're kind of more free to to deal with it. So. I mean, there's a lot of ins and outs of it that, that have to be done precisely, but it certainly is a good way to, to access your money if, if you need that money early. Interesting. Yeah, I had no idea that existed at all. Cool. Yep. Yeah, there are lots of interesting strategies. And I remember the Mad Scientist article, he even mentioned if you're in a high tax bracket, it might be worth still doing your traditional 401k and taking a 10% penalty. You'll still come out numerically ahead. <laughs> There's a lot of moving parts to all this, and no one knows what taxes are going to be in the future. And, and that's why the F word comes into account again, <laughs> flexibility, not that F word. Tell us about downshift and what you can do for clients. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> uh, we, we provide real financial planning um, under a, a fee-only model, and we've created this process called the shift process that we walk clients through. So it's basically a financial planning process where we're going to, again, align your, your money with, with your values, essentially. Um, so it's, you know, we, we survey and harness your current resources, your, your income, your investments, all of that stuff. Um, and then we have what we call an imagine meeting where we kind of put all of the money aside and discuss what's, what's most important to you, to, to our clients, to whoever we're talking to. Um, you know, what would you be doing with your time if you didn't have to sell it for money? What, how would your life be different? And, you know, that helps us get to the root, what we call your financial purpose. You know, what is your money for? Uh, and then we use the financial planning process to help bring that to life, essentially, to, to uh, you know, help, help folks allocate as much money as possible toward their true financial purpose. I think that's interesting. You're starting from, we talked about this a little bit before, you're starting with values and then backing into the money question instead of starting with money. Yeah, which is so we'll look at cash flows, like look at their spending, spending, spending categories. Like, oh, you guys eat out, like take it, like fast food a lot. Like, is that what you truly value? Like you could save money by cooking, but that'll allow you to, you know, work less hours later on because you're saving money and able to kind of like put that in your investment portfolio. I mean, it's just so important to establish what your financial purpose is, right? I mean, if, uh, you know, there's 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 someone in our industry that that speaks about this a lot, and and his financial purpose that he mentions all the time is to spend time with his family, mostly outside. 
It's perfect. It's just a short phrase. Um, and, and it makes it easy. I mean, if, if we had a client that said their financial purpose was to spend time with their family, mostly outside, um, and they, you know, they, they came to us one day with some, some investment idea that just came off the wall from, you know, their, their friend down the street or, you know, told us they wanted to buy a, a new Tesla cyber truck, let's say, or whatever, you know, it's, it makes it a lot easier for us to say, okay, so, <clears throat> you, you know, you told us your, your financial purpose was to spend time with your family, mostly outside. Can you tell me how this fits into that? And it's not, we're not saying you can't buy your cyber truck, right? We're just saying, you know, like, hold up. Does this fit your financial purpose? If it does, that's great. If it doesn't, did your financial purpose change? Or are we maybe just keeping our, you know, we need to get our eye back on the ball here. Like what's, what are we doing? And it gives you a base to a foundation upon which to make these decisions, a more secure foundation. Uh, how many hours do you spend with a typical client per year? Our target is uh, 40 hours per client household per year. So we have actually, this this is kind of our little downshift, right? Um, and we've structured the business in a way that, you know, we, we seek to serve about 40 to 50 client households per advisor. So if it's the two of us, that would be up, up to 100. Um, in the industry, you'll see a lot of financial advisors, the, the sort of rule of thumb, the benchmark, the 4%, if you will, is 100 client households. So we're about half that, uh, but we're looking to provide a lot more in-depth service to our clients and then also have some time for ourselves. I mean, we don't want to be working 60-hour weeks either. Um, so, yeah, so about 40 hours per, per year on our side. That doesn't mean the client's going to spend 40 hours on the phone with us per year. Okay, I was <laughs> like, man, how many meetings? It's like uh, signing up for a college course or something. Yeah, yeah. we have this course check calendar, which, um, which has different topics that we review every month for the client. A lot of them are just checking. So, so there's once we've once we've created the financial plan up front, done all of the the upfront work. There's a lot of very heavy upfront work that has to be done. Once we've done that, we we start utilizing this course check calendar. There are three actual meetings per year, scheduled meetings, um, and then of course we'll have you know ad hoc meetings if we have to call your I don't know your 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 four hundred one k administrator or something like that, whatever. Um, and then beyond that, we're going to handle the what's on our course check calendar, which is kind of a different topic each each month. And you know, most of the time, it's going to be a small check in, and you'll probably say, "Hey, nothing's changed, right?" So, like for example, if we do a beneficiary review, hey, here's the beneficiaries listed on your all your accounts. Anything changed here? No. Oh, well, there's no been no births or deaths in your family. You haven't gotten married or divorced. Probably hasn't changed. But we want to make sure we're checking on it regularly. Right. I mean, you I don't know if you guys have ever heard, but we folks in the industry will tell you stories about having prospects come to you and, you know, married a married couple and someone's beneficiary is their ex spouse because they just never updated it. Hmm. So it's important to, yeah, to keep things up to date. Away, it goes to the ex spouse. You know, yeah, it's a retirement yeah. account. I mean, it's essentially a legal contract. You can't, you know. So we want to make sure that you know, beneficiaries are are up to date. I do have a question for you both, and there might be a follow-up question depending on how you answer, even if you want to answer this question. You don't have to answer, but are you two financially independent? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that. Um, I would say that I, I would I would say that if I, for some reason, could not work a day more in my life, um, we would survive. Uh, I am not to the, the number that I want to hit today. So, so here's... Like I said, I'm a, I'm a technician, right? Um, I want to be able to spend two times the median household income when I'm like financially independent, right? If, if I were to retire. So today, the median household income is roughly $60,000. So in today's dollars, that'd be about $120,000 a year. And then you can apply the 4% rate, the 4% withdrawal rate to to get to that figure of roughly 5 or $6 million in today's dollars. So no, I don't have 5 or $6 million today. Uh, yeah. Uh I'd say yes, but then I had two kids. <laughs> so that brings in some variability in expenses. And, you know, I want to be able to help them with their college educations. And who knows what that's going to look like, like 14 years down the road. Um, so, so instead of just relying on my portfolio and just hanging out at the beach, uh, I'm doing something I'm passionate about, working with Travis, helping people achieve five, and and bringing in that kind of, income but i'm not putting in the 60 plus hours okay so doing something i'm passionate about um and i mean i'd say that i'm fi 
I mean, bar, barring any, you know, tragic disability or death related <laughs> incident, we, we would both be work optional long before our 60s. Um, but again, it's it's about what's important. Like uh, $120,000 a year is a lot of money, right? You don't have to spend $120,000 a year. I just like to be able to spend $120,000 a year. And that leads to my follow-up question. I just want to make sure anyone who signs on with you, you're not going to hit your number in two years and then say, yeah, we're closing our practice. I'm going to transfer you over to, to sublaw to sublaw. No. So I'm looking for oh, some no, longevity no. here. Yeah, no, no that actually we, raises the whole thing we did, we haven't even talked about yet. So we, we do want to grow the business a little bit. Um, there's a wide spectrum within our industry. If you want to start a financial advisor practice, you could be just a solo by yourself the entire time, right? Or you can grow it to an enterprise business of you know dozens or hundreds of employees and thousands of clients. What we want to do, we, we target serving, if we can grow to this point, like three to 500 client households total, which would necessi necessitate hiring a couple of advisors along with us. And what we want to do is sell equity in the, in the business to these advisors so that instead of us growing the business and then having one day where we just kind of sell it, we want to kind of slowly sell it in chunks and take steps back and let someone else kind of take our dream and run with it. So cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And we and we, we set it up that way where we planned for it that way so that um, it would be also in our client's best interest. Like you don't want to be a client and realize, oh my gosh, my advisor's retiring. Now what am I going to do? Like, mm -hmm. so we had the succession play, plan in place so that, you know, the, the client will continue to be served by someone who's like-minded that we trust. So I think this is a really great interview, but I've got one problem with you two. I went to your website the other day, and I know you've had some issues with your tech guy, and I'm a tech guy, so I know I know where you're coming from. I've been on the other side of that, but we don't want to publish this until your site is up and going, downshiftfinancial.com, so people can actually go to one day. Are you going to get that tech guy's uh, ass in shape, I, or when are you going to? I think it'll be up by the end of next week. Oh, okay, Cer perfect. Certainly before September. Okay, perfect. So downshiftfinancial.com, we will mm -hmm. put that in the show notes as well. Very good. Thank you. All right. Yeah, awesome, guys. Thanks really appreciate us. it. Yeah, appreciate Thank you. it.